You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining me today is State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties in the city of Hudson and Lenawee County. Thanks for joining us, Representative Fink. Thank you, Josh. So I want to start last time. Uh, we talked a lot about things that were going to be happening in the next few weeks in the state legislature, and many of them did. The Civil Rights Amendment adding sexual orientation and gender identity to the protected classes. We talked about that, and then it passed the House two days later, the Senate another day later, and the governor signed it just last Thursday. Several of the gun restriction laws uh, or other gun-related uh, bills passed the Senate, so now they're headed over to you in the House, uh, and you'll be taking them up, I'm told, in short order. Um, I wanted to give you some time to talk about what you think the significance is with, you know, these bills, one having passed both houses and signed into law, the gun bills headed your way. What what do you see as the important things there that your constituents should be taking note of? For the expansion of the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, I, I think that there's actually that most workplaces will be not particularly affected by the change. I don't think that most people's hiring practices and other employment practices will be implicated. But the people who I am concerned will be implicated are generally religious organizations. The sponsor of the bill in in committee, I guess probably a day or two after you and I last spoke about this, said that he'd be willing to entertain some kind of an upfront accommodation for religious organizations as long as it did not extend to even closely held businesses. And I think we've spoke a little bit about that, but we had an amendment ready to offer that would have exempted or provided some space for religious organizations, charities, schools, et cetera, essentially religious organizations that are not strictly churches. And when I proposed this to the the sponsor, he sidestepped and said he didn't think that any religious uh, people were actually having anything taken away from them was the language that he used. So he didn't, he wasn't actually interested in it, even though a few moments earlier he said that he would be open to it. What I think is important, one thing that I think is important about that, that sort of applies more generally, is that one of the responses that we've gotten in arguing that religious organizations are, are going to be particularly negatively impacted here because of the nature of their commitments, in this case with regard to sexuality, and the way in which they try to allow their positions and missions to be dictated not by their own preferences or certainly contemporary preferences, but instead typically scripture. And this would apply, by the way, to at least folks coming from Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, and the Islamic tradition, all of which have a meaningful presence here in Michigan. While there was testimony offered, although not actually given at committee because they weren't called on from uh, leaders from, I think, all of these, certainly at least at, at the House committee, we had testimony from the Catholic Conference and testimony offered from an Islamic leader who was not actually called on to, to deliver the testimony. Well, what I think is really important here is that one of the responses we heard is that, well, the First Amendment offers this protection and the courts, you know, have begun to define it, including a citation to a case, a Supreme Court case from a few years ago uh, known as uh, Hosanna Tabor. And I just want to say that I don't view my role as a state legislator as being one where I can do whatever I want as long as the courts are also there to sort it all out. And so really regardless of whether the, the, I mean, a person might say that the Constitution's protections are adequate and a person might say the Constitution's protections are uh, minimal and we should do more than that. In either case, the legislator shouldn't be looking only to other parts of the government to do that work. Certainly, if we think that the Constitution's protections are only minimal and, sh- and, and the, the state should be more protective of a given interest, 
than the Constitution might be, uh, then it's up to us to legislate that. And it's up to us to say, yes, the Constitution has this minimal background uh, protection for whatever this interest is, uh, in this case, religious liberty, but we're going to be more broad than that. But even if we think that the Constitution is sufficiently broad, it is still not our job to farm out our, our constitutional obligation, the oath that we took to another branch to define. All of us have the obligation, uh, obligation to take the Constitution seriously ourselves and to stand up uh, for the rights and uh, the constitutional order, uh, the rights of our citizens and the constitutional order that we all committed ourselves to in our own oaths. And so I, I, I thought that that was one particularly uh, frustrating aspect of this expand of the civil so-called civil rights expansion is that there was sort of a farming out of of the protection uh, of individual religious uh, Americans and religious organizations to the judiciary, which is not satisfactory in this or any other field. Yeah, well, and. And when you look at the language of the First Amendment, I mean, it's not the the executive branch shall not enforce any law against establishment of religion or, or any of this, but it's that Congress shall pass no law. And then when it's applied to the states, I mean, presumably it'd still be the legislative branch is where the restriction lies. And that proceeds to the other branches. But <laughs> yeah. Well, you make you make the uh, very worthy point that incorporation seems particularly awkward for the First Amendment since the first words refer to Congress specifically, but yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the attraction to saying, well, if the courts say so, if the courts say yes, if the courts say no, then that's sort of the answer. Um, that's universal. It's not only liberals. I mean, in this case, that's who it was. It's not only liberals and it's not only conservatives. It's all kinds of people sort of say, well, you know, this is what we have courts for. They decide and they let us know. And, uh, you're absolutely right. When when the Constitution says Congress shall make no law, that doesn't mean Congress shall do what it wants and the courts will hem it in if necessary. What it what it means is that Congress is not supposed to make the law that violates that amendment. And in our case, you know, this, the legislature should not be passing laws that put our citizens in a in a position of having to go and vindicate their rights in front of another part of the government if we if if we can do better than that. I mean, obviously every none of us is perfect. The, the legislature will never be perfect. Not every single one of our laws will be found to be constitutional in every application, you know, going on forever. So that's being realistic. We need, we do need the state courts and we need the federal courts um, to provide the check that all of us are taught uh, our constitution is, is supposed to be providing. Or in a given instance, we might need an executive that refuses to enforce an, an unconstitutional law. Uh, but that doesn't diminish our own responsibility to govern constitutionally uh, and to really work within the Republican form of government that uh, our people are are rightly relying on. And this is certainly a reciprocal issue in that the courts say that, well, we're also looking to what the legislature passes to get some guidance on exactly how this is supposed to be applied. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of, as you mentioned, businesses that have a tie to religion is in the Bostock case. It was several different cases combined together. The headline one was Clayton County. But one of the cases was a funeral home that had an employee who was transgender. And so that was at issue there. But funeral homes very often can be religiously run. You have pastors officiating. The, the court said, well, no, that's not close enough to 
count as religion under the First Amendment. But that's something that the legislatures don't even seem to be talking about. Should this apply to a business like that that has such a close tie to faith? This is a particularly fraught area of constitutional law or even First Amendment law. I mean, I think that the I think it's accurate that the law of speech is probably easier to grasp than the the, the case law on it than the case law on uh, religious liberty. And the point you're getting at here of what kind of accommodation might the legislature make, even if it's not required to, is one of the elements at issue um, and why and what makes our constitutional law on this subject, our case law, so difficult to make sense of. And I think some of that's just a reflection that it's a difficult area of law because I think any right-thinking person recognizes that we view religious uh, you know, protections for religious liberty or conscience as being extremely important and fundamental to, I mean, I, you know, the, the courts use this flowery language of, uh, you know, the meaning of life or the sweet mystery of life is what people joke. That's not actually in the case, I think, but sort of making fun. But the point is it's, you know, we sort of recognize like this is more important to people than other things are. Uh, and yet you still have to have some kind of government organization. And so for a long time, we use this um, concept of compelling interest uh, and least restrictive means to sort of see if the state was imposing an undue burden on religion. And I did introduce and attempted to, we attempted to do a tie bar of this legislation to a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a state uh, so-called RIFRA, uh, which other states have adopted. And uh, the, the majority summarily dismissed that attempt. Uh, but it would be, the idea here would be to get at, at kind of like what is at the core of religious liberty. I want to say, you know, this, this, that is not the only issue with this legislation, the problem of religious liberty, but it, it probably presents the most acute and, uh, and I mean, unfortunate in the sense that I think the, uh, the downsides are being downplayed by the sponsors. And so people will find themselves, I am very concerned that, you know, say a religious school will find itself having to litigate its way to practices that it has always adhered to. Um, and without any, you know, so-called animus, another, another term the Supreme Court has used in, in some related cases, without any particular animus towards anyone or any group, but simply adhering to their, their long-held, uh, certainly sincerely held religious practices and religious beliefs leading to practices. So, you know, this is just one of the problems, I think, with this style of legislation. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. Um, I want to read that quote that you referenced uh, in, well, not the entirety of the case, but just in, in the context as we're moving on to the next topic. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So... With that in mind, and he's he's writing about uh, abortion in that case, uh, Senate Bill 147 passed the Senate last Thursday. Uh, as we just talked about, an uh, amendment that passed and is now law amending the El Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act, prohibiting discrimination in employment, housing, and education, as well as access to public accommodations. This Senate bill would add to it uh, a it changes the definition of sex so that the protected class includes a termination of pregnancy uh, as part of this protection. So an employer right now 
uh, can't discriminate against a woman because she has, uh, she is pregnant or has children. Uh, but this would say it can't discriminate against her because she's had an abortion. Uh, Democrat Senator Erica Geis, who's the lead sponsor here, she said, uh, quote, it's necessary that this loophole is closed so that employers who are hostile to abortion uh, believe they need to insert themselves in people's reproductive health care decisions do not violate the state constitution. So, Representative Fink, you're about to see this in the House. What do you think about this piece of legislation? Yeah, as far as I know, it has not been scheduled for a hearing yet. But if it if it is, um, I'm pretty confident it'll be in the Judiciary Committee that I'm on. Um, well, I guess I have like one thing to say about it that's sort of lawyerly, and then I can respond on the policy grounds as well. I guess I'll do the policy first, so it doesn't seem like I'm trying to put that off. Um, I think it's bad policy. I think uh, this would as with, without learning more about it, without hearing from the sponsor why I'm wrong about this, and so far I haven't often heard from sponsors why I'm wrong. They've just been in a, we're going to do it anyway kind of uh, posture so far this term. But un- unless I hear why I'm wrong, I don't know why this wouldn't mean that, say, right to life could not terminate, I'm sorry, that's an unfortunate choice of words, could not fire an employee uh, who had an abortion. Um, it does not make sense to me that the state would compel right to life of Michigan to retain employees who engage in practices that are antithetical to the reason for existence of the organization. Uh, and yet I don't know what exemption exemption they would be relying on. It's not a, it's not even a strictly religious organization. You know, it's a secular organization it happens to, to align with what people think of as sort of religious sympathies on the question of life, but they aren't actually, they're making religious arguments. They're making secular arguments about, you know, what it means to have a, an independent life. And so I don't know why the state thinks that it should uh, prevent, the state would think that it should prevent organization committed to uh, restoring Michigan's previous pro-life laws, you know, prevent it from having a policy in accordance with that uh, for its own employees. Um, and, and I don't know why this law wouldn't prevent that. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me uh, and it, and I do think that it would, uh, honestly restrict the freedom of employers and employees to contract in a way that is not obviously, uh, useful and to put this that, you know, the status of, of, a, of an employee choosing to have an abortion or not on the same status as sex proper. This leads me to my other complaint, but you know, a person's sex, a person's race to say that these are the same kind of category is uh, is obviously wrong to me. And then I guess the second thing is, if I weren't going to, or even I guess suppose you get past all of the arguments I just made, doing this by redefining the term sex to mean not only a person's biological characteristics, um, not only a person's sexual orientation for the reasons that I think you were, you already alluded to in the Bostock case, but you know, kind of distinctions that you have to sort of know a person's sex to know how it's going to work out or whatever, um, to now include the status of whether you've had an abortion or are going to have an abortion or whatever, uh, instead of just putting that in there. I mean, instead of just saying, um, it sort of suggests, I guess, that uh, one, the sponsors might be slightly afraid of the policy that they're pushing because they are essentially equating something that is not equal, you know, equating abort the status of whether you had an abortion with race uh, or even sex or sexual orientation doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not the same kind of thing. And so maybe they're trying to avoid sort of people thinking about it that hard. 
but secondly, it sort of suggests that being a woman is the same thing as being a person who has an abortion. And I don't, I'm here, I'm not actually picking at the whole, you know, people who are not women having abortions argument that you get about the, within the sort of transgender conversation. But you'd expect some pushback from that, that they're putting it on sex here. I mean, you wouldn't actually expect the pushback, but if it was a matter of logic, then you should be able to expect it. But, uh, but just setting that to the side, if, if we didn't have any of that, the suggestion that um, a person needs to be equally protected based on whether the person is a man or a woman or whether the person has actually had an abortion uh, sort of suggests that that all women are abortion havers. And uh, I think that's a bit of a of a, you know, a bit of a shocking sort of equation. Um, obviously. Many women do have abortion. I think we had 30,000 abortions in our state last year. But again, if that's a status to be protected, it seems as though it should stand and fall on it, stand or fall on its own terms, um, not be sort of surreptitiously inserted into the definition of sex, which here really means the definition of womanhood. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. We have Representative Fink with us. Uh, I want to move to... Uh, report from the center square about an investigation that discovered governor whitmer used the governor's emergency education relief fund a part of the pandemic cares act funding from the federal government back in 2020 in order to create courses promoting critical race theory teaching in the classroom total of 17 professional development courses were produced for teachers seeking to acquire or maintain their teaching certificate Um, some of the titles of these include anti-racism and social justice teaching and leadership anti-racist trauma-informed practice in pre-K education, and social-emotional learning equity elaborations. Um, what do you think about all of this? What What was your reaction when you saw that headline and read about this? Yeah, I just heard about it last week. And, um, you know, my reaction overall, I think, I think the article actually that, that uh, you mentioned at Center Square mentioned that we had some legislation dealing with critical critical race theory or the way the term that the legislation used I think is maybe more helpful because it's actually descriptive um, in in that it said uh, it was essentially a prohibition on Michigan teaching the state government teaching racial or gender stereotypes so critical race theory uh, but critical theory feminist critical theory. Uh, or or other forms of critical theory, which, uh, you know, I guess the way I would sort of sum it up for anybody who hasn't spent at least a little bit of time poking around at the academic history of it is essentially the um, sort of the idea that uh, the, the policies or the society in which we're, we're sort of living now, uh, depending on which form of critical theory or which uh, category of critical theory you're getting at, sort of often oftentimes is said to sort of redound back to um, uh, come back to a a fundamental approach uh, of elevating one group of people above another group and that sort of, it sort of explains everything about everything else that we see and so in the in the context of critical race theory you hear ideas um, some of these things seem uh, just like laughable and, and really terrible but like things like um, people claiming that uh, traditional workplace norms like being on time is like an imposition of whiteness or, or westernness or something like that, um, I, which I just think is like a really horrible way to, to treat people and it sort of suggests that 
that that's like a suggestion that people who are not from like traditional Western cultures, like essentially can't have a functioning economy or something, or uh, I don't even know exactly what they think the point of it is, but it's, it's basically a, a way to treat people as constituents of categories that have nothing to do with them, with their own, um, well, don't necessarily have anything to do with their own experiences, but might just be experiences of people who are in some sense like them. Uh, and secondly, sort of suggests that people are stuck in categories uh, that the state evidently is, is supposed to not only recognize but reinforce. And when those categories include things like race, it should give us, I think it should uh, ring alarm bells because one of the fundamental commitments in my political outlook is that the race of an American citizen is immaterial to the way that citizen should be treated. And so when we say equal protection, it essentially should mean that uh, all Americans are given all the same advantages of citizenship and all the same advantages of living in the United States and living under our laws. And I think that the, um, the main lesson of critical theory in this case is uh, sort of to undermine uh, even that aspiration because it's sort of already pronounced to be DOA, you know, that we, we even, you know, because we, we, we have to take, it's certainly true. We have to take account. And I mean, any person who reads the history reader here at Hillsdale college, the American heritage reader, you know, you have to take account of the fact that for about 250 years, the United States or the government of the area of the United States, uh, legally enforced racism, even in the form of, of race-based slavery. And then for another hundred years and in effect, so 90 years or 89 years between the, the civil war and Brown versus board of education and probably another 25 or, or even slightly more years. I mean, I, I want to say, I remember the last school that was sort of desegregated in accordance with Brown's command, the, the Brown course command of desegregation with all the deliberate speed uh, didn't happen until the early 1980s. So we have to take account of the fact that America has lived uh, with legal, um, legally enforced racism for a long time uh, without despairing and thinking that that means that either we always effectively will or that the people who were subject to legally enforced racism, and I think it's fair to say if you follow somebody, someone's thinking like Frederick Douglass, uh, everyone was harmed by this. I mean, the, the, the souls and the morals of the uh, racist uh, adherence to the, to the previous you know, attitudes that were, that became enshrined in law, those people were also harmed by, you know, as he would put it, they degraded themselves as well. So we had this, this horrible degrading legal regime and anything that would impede us from moving past it and instead focusing on the equality of all Americans, I think is, um, in effect, if not an intention going to make everything take, make it take longer to see, uh, to sort of see America complete, you know, it, as completely as, as possible, move past uh, what should never have happened in the first place. And so I guess that's kind of my, my concern is that it's, uh, it's essentially, an, in the long run, an anti-equality obsession uh, to, to boil everything down to something like critical race theory. Again, it could be other forms of critical theory. I mean, there are other forms of critical theory out there, some of which are economic, some of which are about men, men and women. You know, I think feminist critical, feminist critical theory is probably the first one that achieved uh, academic prominence. But in any case, it's sort of a, 
fatalist view of what American or what, uh, uh, what human civilizations or it can achieve. And I think it's bad, uh, physical science that leads to bad social science and, uh, leads to bad outcomes. And one of the interesting things here, I mean, there's been complaints about the bills that would ban this from the classroom saying, oh, you're infringing on the rights of teachers to say whatever, which have problems with that. But I mean, this is the governor's office giving teachers who have to take these courses for not necessarily that particular course, but they have to take something uh, from the this list to to be able to teach in the state and telling them you should promote this teaching and all of that it's it's somewhat bizarre and even I, the the preschool I, that that just baffles me to say, and reminds me of the conversation i think is whoopi goldberg a few months ago like oh none of this is taught in even right. high schools it's too complicated and yet right. i mean even we're seeing that the governor's office is admitting that it's being taught in our preschools which is just yeah because well, the theory was sort of developed in in advanced academic literature, law review journals, and probably the equivalents in uh, sociology and anthropology and whatever. Uh, but it was never intended to be cabined there. I mean, you know, you when you break out a, an academic theory like this, the idea is that it will reverberate through to some purpose. Think like the the language of the legislation that was evidently being rejected or has been rejected by the by the new majority. Uh, essentially said, I mean, you can look up the. I don't, I'm blanking on the bill number now. But uh, it was sponsored by Representative Andrew Beeler, and, and I was the first co-sponsor of it last term. We were seatmates, so it was easy to be the first co-sponsor on each other's legislation if you show up at the floor and the guy next to you has a bill to sign. But uh, what it essentially said was that what we will not do is teach a child that because of his or her membership in a given group, uh, his or her outcomes are fixed uh, or even you know, sort of generally cast and have to be overcome. Um, and again, I just think it's such a sad and myopic view of the world to say, no, it'd be better to teach a child uh, that because uh, he is black, X will happen to him, or because he is white, uh, he has this problem or that attitude, or because the child is Asian, uh, he has this advantage or, or, this dis- or that disadvantage, um, rather than at the level of the state providing instruction, telling each of them that... Uh, yeah, they are independent citizens, capable of uh, their own, you know, moral agency, and that that is what we want them to leave our schools with is is to be on a path towards outstanding citizenship, which depends on that person being himself or herself, and not uh, sort of farming out his identity or her identity to some uh, uh, other collective. All right. Well, we are running out of time, but I wanted to highlight some older news that. Uh, we missed last time due to time. Uh, and that is that the Republicans had a pretty decent win at the beginning of the month when the state Senate passed 4,001 uh, without getting the scheduled income tax decrease, uh, which right now state income tax 4.25% based on this previous law we've talked about several times before, uh, that rate would decrease to 4.05%. Um, the the plan was to move spending around and do some things so that essentially people got a hundred and eighty dollar check for each tax family or whoever's filing together, but they wouldn't get a tax decrease. That's not what ended up happening. You do have the tax decrease. And so 
quick final words what this means for them or, or your yeah. reaction to that. Yeah. So it does mean that there won't be a $180 check or, or for a married couple, $90 checks each, or I mean, $180 to be split, uh, or actually as was somewhat comically, but ultimately not really comically pointed out to me, a couple that was divorced, uh, since the last tax year was also staring at getting one hundred and eighty dollar check that they were gonna have to split if they've been filing jointly up to that point. Uh which sort of underscores the haphazard way in which this plan was slapped together. So it does mean you're not gonna get that check. It also means that your income tax rate will be uh two tenths of a percent or nearly five percent uh, over the overall rate lower next term. For an individual family it'll probably take maybe a couple of years on on average maybe three years for the for the money to equal out, but then it'll be there for the, forever. I mean, the rate will be lower forever. So every year you'll save more money, and within a short period of time, you'll be far ahead of where you'd be if it was just $180 checks coming at you. And especially for small businesses, it's a major win. Those small businesses filing typically as individuals, you know, through through the, the partners of the LLC or or whatever, could be um, seeing substantial savings even in the first year of uh, being taxed on hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the two-tenths of a percent change there uh, will be significant right away. And it's a major improvement over the governor's scheme. And it doesn't come with the to be frank, lies of bookkeeping uh, that would have promoted her $180 check scheme over the income tax rate cut, which is what the people were entitled to according to law anyway. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Josh Barker here with Andrew Fink. See you next time. Thanks, Josh.